0: This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Amy Shelley, the CFO from the Options Clearing
1: Corporation, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast.
0: This is Episode 601.
1: We put a very audacious goal out there to grow to 300 communities by the end of 2021, which is about a 25% growth for us from where we were at the end of last year. Now, of course, some of those timelines are going to be impacted by the current state of the world, but that's still our goal. Maybe not by the end of 2021, we might be a quarter or two off, but that's still our goal. And we're able to do that without borrowing any more money. And the reason we can do that is because we're understanding our cash flows so much better.
0: It's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Gila Seferuza, CFO of Meritage Homes. It was only two months ago that Gila began reaching out, signaling to landowners that it was time to renegotiate. Just one of many boxes she needed to check off as part of a COVID response. On behalf of the U.S. market's seventh largest public home builder, our discussion with Gila begins after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega at planful.com. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. We're speaking with Gila Seferuza, CFO of Meritage Homes, the seventh largest publicly held home builder in the country. Gila, welcome. Thank you we want to find out about Meritage today and certainly hear your thoughts on this new environment that we've all uh, become part of. But first, let's begin where we always do, which is to ask our guests to look back for us and share a little bit about those experiences they feel prepared them for a CFO role. What comes to mind for you?
1: So for me, I've had my, uh, just a little bit of a, of a background for me. I started my life out as a lot of folks uh, in this sector do in public accounting. So I just ha- saw a very large breadth of companies right off the bat. I was, you know, very, very young in my 20s and, you know, sitting across the table from pretty high-powered folks. And right away, I knew this, this is something that was um, a passion and something that was very interesting for me to work in the corporate environment. Um, after that, I spent a lot of time at Starwood Hotels and Resorts. Obviously, now they're part of the Marriott the Marriott group, but at the time, uh, they had just done a reverse acquisition and grew from a very small baby reed into a fairly large, the third largest uh, hospitality company in the world and a public company to boot. So um, I joined them right before 9-11 and uh, had a really... Um, informative career path. I had a lot of folks that took me under their wing there, and I learned how to manage during a downturn, right? Obviously, uh, thinking back to the last kind of large crisis that we had, uh, the the downturn after 9-11, a lot of tough decisions had to be made, and I was just fascinated, just kind of allowed to be the fly on the wall in a lot of conversations that were probably way above my pay grade at the time. Uh, and I was just fascinated by understanding all the inputs and outputs of how decisions are made. And so when I joined Meritage several years later, I really uh, voiced my, my passion for being part of the strategic decision-making team. And when an opportunity arose about five years ago and they asked me if uh, it was something I was interested in, I, I jumped on it right away. And
0: you climbed through the ranks clearly at Meritage over that period. Uh, I think you joined around 2006. I would just like to point that out. I mean, you were uh, you were a director of external reporting, uh, and at one point in time, you were the chief accounting officer. And of course, that uh, sort of opened the door, I would imagine, to the CFO role. How am I doing? Is that a too short a synopsis for you? Or?
1: No, I think I think that's fairly accurate. I I love the C, the the external reporting, the SEC role, because while you're you're a little bit of Jack, Jack of all trades, master of none, because you have to aggregate everything that the company does and then articulate it in a layman's enough way that you can publish it externally and, you know, potential investors are interested, but you have to know it well enough to speak intelligently with analysts and, and the public and potentially large institutional investors. So I think I learned Pretty much everything I ever wanted to learn and more in that role, you have to really poke and prod to all the different operational departments to understand what you're talking about, but also really dig into the financials and treasury components of the company to speak to you know bond investors. So um, I think that's that was a successful path for me personally.
0: Many, many uh, people build their career, uh, mostly in, in one company, as you did. How did you become a leader? How do you feel as if you were challenged, you met the challenged? You became more confident, and you emerge as a leader. How would you describe it? Was there one specific uh, role that you had that you felt allowed you to demonstrate your leadership qualities?
1: So I think for me, I don't know if it's a specific role. It's maybe more a more a personality trait. And folks that were um, willing to offer me a lot of opportunities. I am perpetually curious. I just. Uh, You know, I'm definitely not a role player. A lot of times I'll be in meetings and I'll give opinions and I'll see some folks in the room say, is that the CFO or the COO? She certainly has a lot of opinions about operations. But for me, I don't think that you can be a successful CFO unless you understand the operation. So, you know, I'm not agnostic about whether we make, you know, widgets or homes. I'm extremely passionate about home building. You know, people laugh at me. I own three Meritage homes. I'm on my third one. I'm absolutely passionate about what we do. I kind of joke around, you know, I'm not only an employee, I'm also a customer. So I, I give feedback that sometimes people here don't, don't want to hear. You know, if I've had a hiccup or something with warranty or something didn't go smoothly, I, I give really fair and honest feedback. But the reason I'm living in my third Meritage home is because I absolutely believe in what we do. And that makes me want to dig in deeper and understand what makes Meritage unique. And the fact that we're known in the in the sector as the green builder is just something that's a personal passion of mine. So I feel like when I'm when I'm representing the company, I have so much faith and confidence in what we do because I fundamentally understand, but also believe in our product. A lot. I'll, I'll give you one little tidbit. Uh, when I first got here, our tagline at the time was. Building the American dream. And I know it sounds just very corny, but I really believe that. I really believe that we offer people the American dream. There's a lot of other countries where, you know, down payment is 50, 60%, and you save your whole life to to be able to afford a home. And for us to be able to do that in the US, and I see, you know, millennials and 20 year olds and 30 year olds having um, this amazing opportunity to own a house, I just think that's fantastic.
0: You just provided us with one of the smoothest segues to our our business question uh, that we've ever had. <laughs> but I just want to let you know we're going to have a few more career related questions a little later uh, during the mentoring round for you. Uh, but our our listeners know well we want to learn more about uh, Meritage now and uh, what what's really sets Meritage apart in the in the uh, marketplace today. Uh, and again, you've already hinted at a few items, but when you describe this, uh, and again, you have different stakeholders, but w- what sets Meritage apart?
1: So I think there's there's an overriding um, strategy for us, obviously, and it's based maybe more on markets. We're primarily focused on the entry level and the first-time move-up buyer, which if you kind of just look at the you know buying cohorts and the population cohorts, it's primarily the millennials and the baby boomers. Which are the largest segments of the population? So obviously our, our business is targeted to those two customer groups. But I think as an actual builder, you know that's interesting for investors. But if you're actually going to buy our home, you know what makes it interesting for you and for us? Our you know our internal tagline, not not one that we you know have published anywhere, is, is uh, to offer people surprisingly more. Right? We want you to walk in and say wait, I get all of this for this price or the process is this easy or I don't have to come four, five, six times to do this. So for us, we really we understand uh, how stressful and overwhelming a home purchase process can be. For most people, it's the largest investment of their life and there's always a little bit of nervousness and hesitation. Uh, the last thing we want to add to that is disappointment and stress. So we really try to uh, figure out You know the nuts and bolts of building the house as well as delivering a process that's very, very streamlined uh, and we want the customer to be wowed when they're done. So for us, I'll I'll give you a practical example of that. So for us, our entry-level product, even though we're a new home builder, we uh, have preset designs and preset interiors. So we pick all the possible combinations and we have those ready to start. So when you come in, You say, well, I like elevation A with interior type B or C or D with these a couple little upgrades. And we say, great, we have five of those already started on the lot for you. Let's take you there. And the fact that we're line building allows us to harness a lot of savings, both on the material and on the trade part, which then we pass on to the customers, both in the terms of cost savings, but also in being able to offer them higher end finishes than what they would typically expect in a home at that price point. So if they've shopped some of our competition, you know, we don't have linoleum flooring, we have granite countertops, woods and and tiles in the home, and they look at it and, you know, they kind of do a double take on the price and said, is this the all-in price or is there, you know, another hidden hidden something somewhere down the road? And, you know, it's a great feeling to be able to say this is the all-in price.
0: Now, you've been there since 2016 in the CFO office, that is. And uh, we want to get a sense of how you made this role your own. Clearly, there were parts of the role that haven't changed very much. But how did you make this role your own? What are you doing maybe a a little differently than your predecessor?
1: Sure. So for me, uh, I love, and this is going to sound, you know, very geeky, but I love the forecasting and budgeting component of the job. I think it allows us to steer the ship. It's, this is a long live business, right? If you think about when you buy land and then you develop it and then you build a model and then you build all the homes and then you start selling, it's a very long trajectory. So having a confident out, outlook on cash I think is critical. If you are not a cash, obviously it's problematic. You're gonna gap out of communities. And if you have too much cash, it's a wasted opportunity, you could have done more. So I think we've really, as a team here, and I don't wanna say I, because I have an amazing team. Some of them have been with me the entire 14 years. I have one of the longest uh, 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 years with the company Tenor, uh, in my group, which I'm extremely proud of, it's probably one of my, my, my favorite accomplishments, if you would ask me, of, of my career here is my, is my incredible ten- tenure with my team. Uh, we really have focused on tightening and uh, improving our understanding of the cash flow process in our business And I really feel like that's allowed us to get comfortable with the pre-building of the inventory, right? It's very expensive to build homes. So if you kind of think back to what we just talked about on, on having the inventory that's kind of ready for our customer to walk into, that's a very expensive proposition, right? To have a whole bunch of homes ready in 250 plus communities across the country. So you can only do that if you're confident that your team has correctly h- helped you in assessing the cash flows, and I think we've put a heightened focus on that process. And then the other component is again just the the integration of ops into accounting and finance. And for me, uh, you know, I always tell I always tell my team because the dollars that we deal with in home building are so large, and I, I always have to remind them that's dollars that's just not numbers right those billions are dollars so let's let's make sure that we understand all the components of what goes into it and you know I, I make my teams go out on site visits and we touch the dirt and we walk through a home construction process with our builders you have to really live it and breathe it to understand how to model it correctly it's not just numbers on a on a piece of paper so i would say that's that's maybe the difference of of where we used to be and where we are today um, you know, I could probably do a whole other segment on my IT team, which is probably my pride and joy right now. But uh, if you want to get into that, we can talk about IT as well.
0: Well, I'm wondering if uh, when you talk about that integration of ops into finance and you talk about your people getting actually walking on the sites, I get a sense of that uh, you want them to understand all the challenges that that uh, those sites face in developing these projects and all the potential snacks that could come back and bite the cash flow, and, and hurt other areas of uh, of the business. I'm wondering where you get that visibility. How you may have improved visibility into your cash flows was there is there a new number that uh, became visible, or you've had your team start uh, measuring something a little differently? Have you been able to? Uh, when there are going to be challenges that in the past perhaps didn't get on the radar until, you know, weeks now get on the radar more quickly. Am I describing this correctly? Or how would you, if I was trying to say how have your lines of sight improved into that cash flow? How, how was it done?
1: Yeah, I think, I think you, I think you, you articulated it exactly correctly. So in the past, I'll, I'll give you, you know, one generic example. So when you buy a piece of land and you prep it for, you know, we call it horizontal development versus vertical, right? Vertical is the actual home construction because it sticks and bricks up in the ground. And then horizontal is everything that you're doing below the ground, whether it's grading or dry or wet utilities, whatever it is that you need to get the land ready to a finished state so it can accept construction of a home. So for us, home construction is pretty straightforward, right? You're building... Everybody knows how to build a house. We're building, you know, thousands of them every year. We know how to do that. The uniqueness in our sector really comes on the horizontal side because every piece of land is just a little bit different. So, this one's got a different grade. This one's got a different pitch. This one the municipality is asking you to add, you know, traffic lights and turning signals or this one has, you know, a rare bird that you have to replace, you know, for wildlife game and fish. There's always something uh, different about every piece of land and that's really always the puzzle that we're solving and I think in the past we maybe oversimplified it right so folks kind of just would look at a piece of land and they would say oh in Arizona my trajectory is 18 months and I have sort of a bell curve so I think I'm gonna spend money here and then it's gonna be a big pop in month 9 through 15 with kind of a drag coming down and you know and in, in by month 18 I should be ready for sales And the more we dug into it, the more we realized that that is maybe too far of a generalization. And uh, the cash flows definitely did not follow that pattern. And for us, you know, no money comes in until we sell homes. (laughs) So it's really important to time the community openings, both because of cash flow, right? We want to know when when the money is going to start to get returned back to the company, but also... Uh, we're very concerned about gapping out, which is more a you know a marketing concern. If people know you as a brand in a market, and all of a sudden you went from 10 stores to four stores because you had a whole bunch of communities sell out, but no communities are ready to come back online, your visibility in the marketplace deteriorates, and it's really hard to get that back. So, spending a lot more time in creating more refined. Calculations and budgeting tools for how to project the cash as well as to build in expected um, delays. You know, home builders are forever optimists, and uh, every project's always going to work perfectly on time, maybe with some cost savings and early. And that's not reality. So, you know, we have weather, we have municipal delays, we have inspections we don't pass the first time, we have life. Life happens all around you. We have COVID-19 right now. So things happen. And, and the 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 more accurate and refined we got in that process, the more cash we realized we actually had and are able to redeploy. We, we put a very audacious goal out there to grow to 300 communities by the end of 2021, which is about a 25% growth for us from where we were at the end of last year. Now, course some of those timelines are going to be impacted by the current state of the world but that's still our goal maybe not by the end of 2021 we might be a quarter or two off but that's still our goal and we're able to do that without borrowing any more money and the reason we can do that is because we're understanding our cash flows so much better
0: earlier this spring during march and april uh, one, one of the things you were tasked with, of course, was going back to the land sellers and saying, let's let's talk, let's renegotiate here under the circumstances. We're in an entirely different environment. Um, can you share some of what the first weeks of the pandemic were like for you? Sure. So
1: home building was the same as every other industry and we were just flying blind, right? You couldn't see two feet out ahead of you and you really didn't know what to do. And the largest cash outlay in our sector is land and development. So we knew that the first thing we needed to do is quickly pull back on that rain, right? That that's something that's 100% within our control, right? We can't stop construction of a home that someone's buying from us in the middle. Plus, we can't typically stop construction anyway for safety, for local safety issues. So the the one the one lever that we knew absolutely we could pull was future land and development spend. So. Luckily, as a company, we have long relationships and positive relationships with a lot of our land sellers, right? This is a relationship that you, that you foster over a long period of time, and at times they're in there with you during the development process. So the first thing we did is, you know, had a callathon. really. I don't know another way to phrase it, and just uh, got on the phone and started working the phone lines and connected with every, every one of our sellers that had a near-term expected closing, Or a near-term development deadline and said hey we're all in this together i know you guys don't want this and we don't want this let's pull back what can we do um i would say the great majority of folks were in exactly the same boat as us and they said yes we we don't have any better goggles than you do let's let's just pump the brakes for for a couple minutes and figure out what we want to do so thankfully i would say for us and i i would venture to say for our entire home building sector we've been fairly successful the land sellers Uh, have been accommodative you know I I wouldn't say they're altruistic this also benefits them as well but but they've been accommodative right they don't want us to drop a deal and if it takes an extra couple months for us to get through the darkest times and gain some visibility I think they were willing to hold our hand and walk through that darkness together now I will say here we stand first week of May and, and the world looks a little bit different Uh, You know, there's been a lot of articles published lately that, uh, unlike the last recession, home building seems to be more resilient than last time. And I would say maybe we have a little bit of an advantage over uh, the existing home sales. We call them them used homes, obviously, because ours are new. But over the existing home inventory, it's pretty tough during quarantine to show a home, right? If you're living in it, you don't want people in your house. They don't want to be in your house. And it's 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 much more difficult to have a home showing in an existing home during quarantine. It's also a little bit tougher to do a walkthrough in a home that is an existing home with, with a virtual tour, right? You can certainly see things and get a feel for it, but I don't know if there's a ding behind the door, right? I can't see every nook and cranny. In a new home, it's a new home. You're getting a new home warranty. I can you first of all you can come and tour it and we'll have an appointment and nobody lives there but second of all you can go I can go and make a video for you I can do a virtual tour you can go on my website and see the virtual tour for a model that looks exactly like it and you know that when you buy that house there's not going to be a ding there's not going to be paint scratches you're, you're going to be just fine and if you want I'm going to make you I'm going to make you fine uh, because I have a you have a warranty on that home from me. So so I think that uh, people have been surprised, ourselves included, at the resiliency of the home building market. And so I think we're now working those phones again. And and I wouldn't say we've opened up the purse strings just quite yet, but we can see some green shoots and we're having some conversations about, hey, if things kind of continue to hover along the current trajectory, it's looking like maybe in the summertime we'll start being... And acquire and close on some of these transactions that we've successfully delayed at this point.
0: Many finance leaders find themselves becoming uh, sort of the go-to executive, go-to business leader when it comes to uh, predicting a a recovery or when a recovery might occur. Uh, And you, you mentioned the summer. I don't think you're saying that's a recovery, really. But as you do your modeling, uh, are there different scenarios as to uh, clearly when a recovery is likely to to occur?
1: So I think you're right. I think you interpreted my my response correct. I don't think anyone is intimating, myself included, that this is a sharp V recovery or that uh, you know by summertime it's going to feel exactly like my initial budget that I submitted to the board in January, right? I, I don't think that that's going to be the case. Although I will say that the the downside models that we were originally modeling, you know, back half of March, we've seen reality much more stable than that. You know, there there, there was a downside scenario where, where we assumed zero homes were sold during the month of April and maybe even May because we didn't know that we would be considered an essential service at that time. So we didn't know if uh, we would even be able to sell and do any construction. So obviously in the markets that we're in, with a few limited exceptions in Northern California, we were deemed an essential service. So we continued operating in a a modified model, of course, uh, during the entire quarantine lockdown uh, period, you know, through today, of course. So our results are improving. So the model's very dynamic. So we're constantly adjusting it based on what we're seeing. But I think for us, we're, we're projecting full year 2020, obviously, to not to not be recovered, uh, not, not recovered to the, to the normalized pace that we would have expected. And then into 2021, um, we're really gauging that day by day, although the delays from our current uh, land acquisition and development spend will surely play out later later in in our life cycle, right into 2021 and 22. We just won't have those communities open when we thought we would, right? So we're not gonna be able to sell and close homes from some of those communities that have a six to eight month delay until later in our projection. So even if the market comes back fully for us, just because we have such a long lead cycle time, uh, it'll take us longer to catch up.
0: You mentioned that you're excited about your involvement with the technology uh, team. What what are you up to there exactly? Before we uh, move on, <laughs> I just want to make sure uh, we hear about it.
1: Sure. So I, I can say hands down the most intimidating part of becoming the CFO was having the IT team become part of my umbrella. Um, while I certainly love technology theoretically, having to oversee an IT department was not something I ever saw in my path. Um, And I've learned to embrace it and understand the amazing power that technology has in today's world. So there's a couple of different areas that I just feel very passionate about. The first is, um, I think we've migrated from becoming a back office, keep the lights on, make sure my computer turns on, change my password kind of environment into an environment that leads business transformation both from the back office side you know we're we're creating amazing tools and technologies for our sales teams to be able to sell virtually right for our construction teams to be able to um, pull and request permits online right so just limiting limiting contact for us to be able to see visibility into a lot of the things that we do so we know which one of our homes to start what's our most popular selling feature if we don't sell by this point what should we do? How do we adjust to changing customer preferences all the way to customer facing technology? Our homes are smart homes and we have an included and connect uh, smart home feature that comes you know, free of charge in all of our homes. And that really came with the aid and help of the. IT team here to understand the, the technology behind what we're putting in the home and why we're picking the selections that we're picking and how it all becomes an integrated solution for our customers. So we're kind of seeing that come all the way through, I mean, down to being able to pre-qualify for your mortgage on our website, right? The integration of the mortgage function of our business with the customer facing website, that that's how the connection, um, the ability to collect your earnest money, with you know a credit card uh, through a hyperlink, right? So we never touch your card. All of those technologies that are customer facing, uh, I think, are relatively new in the last three or four years, where people realize that the power of IT is much more than just faster reporting. For the back office team,
0: I, I think you you had mentioned in the past to me that uh, virtual tours are, are part of the model going forward, or you're using them. I'm curious, do you have that visibility in to see how many virtual tours are given on a you know a specific day?
1: We do, so we're we're able to track if uh, requests for appointments that are coming into our call center are for virtual or live appointments. And we actually disclose this, so this is, not, uh, this is not confidential information. We disclose this on our earnings call that 15% of all of our volume in April came from 100% virtual tours, which is pretty phenomenal. That's just a, that's an incredible number if you think that people are, are making a commitment for a home purchase, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollar home purchase uh, through a virtual tour, right? They're speaking to their, their sales counselor online, they're seeing a, a pre-made video uh, of the model home and then their sales agent is actually physically walking them through the home and showing them the color selections and they're making all of those decisions online. Um, it, it's, it's a much higher number than we were targeting, I'll tell you that. But now that we've seen this 15%, I really think the sky's the limit. Um, doesn't mean that a person won't ever tour their home once we're out of quarantine, but it does mean that if we're having you know, a sales event or a sales blitz and someone wants to lock in a house, they have a high level of confidence that they can do so virtually. And
0: in terms of booking appointments, uh, and I'm asking when I say you, I'm, I'm curious, is it finance? Do you have visibility into how many appointments are booked? Is that a, an indicator for you?
1: It is. So for us... Um, I, I would say we, we have a, a Salesforce. Salesforce is our, is our CRM platform, and we have you know internal dashboards that we've constructed, different ones for different teams. Obviously, the sales teams is looking at, at different different metrics, and the executive team. But for me, there's a couple of metrics that I just believe are critical. Uh, one of them is appointments set. One of them is appointments kept right? We want to make sure that they actually showed up, not just kind of got cold feet later on. Conversions of appointments to sales, right? Because at the end of the day, we only make money when we sell homes. Uh, and then cancellations, right? So I'm very hyper-focused on cancellations because if you're selling a lot of homes, that's wonderful. But if an equal amount of homes are backing out, then you, you really just treaded water in place. So for me, I look at cancellations and then I go one level deeper. And then I try to understand why, people are canceling and the mortgage team is also part of the finance team so typically i can i can go to my head of the mortgage financial services operations and ask him to dig a little bit deeper and say okay is it just cold feet and that's something that i know we can kick to the marketing team and they need to do a little bit of a you know tighter job getting people to overcome their fears is it legitimate issues currently related to covid-19 you know if it's job loss or furloughs okay, I understand that, maybe that's someone that i put in the opportunities bucket to revisit in six months and we can come back and open up that dialogue when, when the market clears, or is it folks that couldn't qualify for whatever reason and then I, I know I need to work with my mortgage group to see if we can offer additional mortgage products. Is there some something that we can do that isn't maybe in our traditional wheelhouse that we maybe need to consider now because people's credit looks different or the ability to qualify qualifies different today than it was just six months
0: ago. I'm wondering how, uh, just in relation to cancellations, I mean, was there some some place in time where during a meeting uh, as a finance leader, you began engaging people to determine the, sort of the anatomy of a cancellation, all the factors sometimes that trigger a cancellation? How do we address them earlier? Or How do we identify them? Let's let's first identify them. Was that ever part of a discussion or is that just an ongoing something that's been ongoing from the first days you stepped uh, into uh, Meritage?
1: So it was something that was always in the background, although I will say there is I, I, I remember it clearly since you mentioned was there a turning point moment. It's when we made the decision to be focused on the entry level buyer is when we decided to start collecting significantly more data about the reason for a cancellation. And and that's, that's twofold. Number one, our entry level buyers tend to have a much higher cancellation rates than traditional move up buyers. So we knew we were going to see a spike and that's okay. Right. Because if my funnel is bigger for the number of potential client customers coming in, there's going to be a higher cancellation rate. And I'm absolutely fine with that. You know, I'll take, keeping 80% of 100 people versus 90% of 10 people, right? So I'm okay, because my funnel of potential buyers got bigger. But because the cancellation rate increases with the entry level buyer, you really need to understand why. And if it's things within your control, or not within your control, I mean, I don't want to waste any, any effort on things I don't control. And the the reasons were kind of all over the place. We didn't have consistent categories and it was really up to the loan officer who, t- who took the response or the sales agent who took the response to kind of come up with a sentence and it was very, very hard to analyze it. So we said, okay, well, what are the major buckets and what are the ones that I, I'm disappointed but can't take action versus frustrated that we didn't, we didn't hit it right the first time? And, and obviously we're focusing all of our energy on the ones that are within our control and you know whether it's marketing sales mortgage whatever team it is that kind of owns that reason we're constantly honing in on it I mean I'll give you an example if we're hearing that a lot of folks are having issues with down payments or there's a lot of fear of what if I get furloughed we might if we hear that in our cancellation rates we might change our sales incentive next week or the next month to specifically address that concern right instead of offering you a discount on your appliances uh, maybe we switch that to we'll help you with your down payment because if that's the hurdle that you needed to overcome to stay in the house uh, let me help you with that hurdle so it's helping us make better operational decisions and like i said it really came to light when the number increased dramatically with our shift to entry level
0: Some wonderful extra insight. Thank you. Uh, We want to jump to our uh, sort of our signature question, uh, which is where we ask for a finance strategic moment. And again, you've had these all along the way in your career, no doubt, uh, Hilla. But this is where we just want you to illustrate one for us where you could – reveal how finance played a strategic role. And I think that's what we were just talking about all throughout the business and operations being so well integrated there. But maybe you can uh, help us by just uh, illustrating one more. Uh, When we ask for a finance strategic moment, what comes to mind?
1: For me, a finance strategic moment probably comes most in a board meeting, You know, board meetings tend to be very focused on strategy and operations, and typically the CEO and the COO are the ones the board wants to hear from, understandably and appropriately. Uh, For me, as uh, in the natural progression of, of my role in the CFO, as the board started to realize the interconnectivity between finance and operations, not just from the budgeting perspective, but okay, how are we going to offer mortgages to the entry-level buyer? How are we going to finance the additional specs that are our, our speculative inventory that our strategy is looking for? How do we get to that 300 community count? What are we doing to ensure that that's all humming and working together without putting the company at incremental risk? And when they started posing those questions jointly to, to myself and the COO, and they realized that our relationship is very, very symbiotic, that was kind of my aha moment where I realized that, you know, this isn't a silo. I don't work in a vacuum. He doesn't work in a vacuum. We certainly know that because we're very close at work and we talk a hundred times a day, but it was great to, to see that, that light bulb flash in the boardroom where they understood the interconnectivity of the two.
0: When we return, CFO Hilla Seferuza enters the mentoring round. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. We're back and we're entering the mentoring round with CFO Gila Seferuza. Uh, given what you've shared with us already, I, I'm looking forward to asking you this first question. Uh, just because you had been at Meritage and you had been chief accounting officer, you've had, you had, had multiple roles before you, you stepped into the CFO role for the first time. When you do step in, you know what could have been left that you didn't really know about the role. There must have been something, though. And the way we usually ask this question is, "What is that piece of advice you wish someone had given you when you uh, stepped into the CFO role for the first time?" Any anything you have to share there?
1: You know that that's a pretty that's a pretty insightful question. I can tell you, my my mentor and the gentleman who retired when I stepped into his role. Um, probably the, the best boss I've ever had an extremely giving and caring mentor. So, you know, I, I thank him every day. But the one thing maybe I wish he would have told me is don't be nervous because all of the other investors and analysts that you're speaking to, conceptually, they're very intimidating, but they know less about the company than you, right? So don't be nervous when they're asking you questions. You're most likely going to know the answer. And if you don't, it's okay to say, let me research that and come back to you. I, I was a I was terrified the first couple you know, analyst meetings that, that we had that they would see that the emperor wore no clothes and uh, you know, it took me a little while to realize that I probably do understand the business and can, and can offer um, meaningful, relevant feedback when they ask questions.
0: Was there and and uh, curious? Was there a particular analyst meeting before you were a CFO where you got to uh, sort of put your toe in the water? I imagine there were lots of opportunities, but nothing like getting in front of analysts and investors for the first first time. Is there anything spring to mind?
1: You know, there was there was a meeting in New York. There's about four or five analyst uh, meetings that are hosted by the by the major banks in New York, and I'd been shadowing my boss and the CEO for for couple quarters now. So I'm kind of sitting in the back and taking copious notes and, um, you know, kind of just prepping myself from one day, that's going to be me. And uh, typically, you have one-on-one sessions, and then you also have a, a live presentation. And I I was always the one that prepared the slides for the CEO and the CFO. And uh, the, the CFO at the time did a little bait and switch on me. And he, I didn't realize that, that he changed the lead slide, and he put my name, not his. And we're getting there and I'm sitting in the audience ready to take notes and he goes, it's you. I said, what do you mean? It's me? He goes, you're going to do this one. You can do it. I believe in you. And I'm really glad he didn't give me any heads up because I probably would have panicked, but um, it ended up going, going very well. And thankfully he was in the audience and gave me confidence just because he was there. But also I knew there was a backstop that if I, I kind of veered off too far, he, he would bring me back.
0: That's amazing. Great, great story. Thank you. Um, now, ask you to look uh, sort of on the personal side of things for us is there a, some habit or daily routine something you do outside the office even that you think in some ways has paid dividends to your professional side again this is something you do it might be a routine a lot of finance leaders talk about exercise that gets a little old so i'm always looking for original original habits but what would you what would you share with us anything
1: I mean, I I, I will give a, I will give a shout out to exercise because I'm I'm a little bit obsessed with exercise. But I, I will say that's not my thing. I spend probably two hours every day, uh, religiously reading the Wall Street Journal. You know, Forbes. I like anything that's published that it's at, at all related to finance, of course, home building, of course, but also a little bit broader. I feel like it's. Sometimes we're in our narrow, narrow kind of view, and we don't understand the context of what's happening in the world. And having that incremental context, I feel, carries the day, right? So when people are very strongly articulating this issue or that issue, it helps me to understand what's happening. And I I would say 100 times uh, more so right now in today's COVID world, You know, understanding what other companies are doing, how is the world viewing, you know, finance, but also return to office, right? How are other companies managing that integration process? How are other companies managing virtual workforces? Just having that breadth of knowledge, I I feel um, I'm I'm very stingy with that time in the morning, and I kind of shut my door in the office, and I don't really let people in, and I block out my calendar. I think that's Maybe the most important thing that I do every day.
0: Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders?
1: So I would just recommend this to everyone. So one of my favorite books of all time, and it's a little bit older right now, but it was I think it came out in 16. It's Shoe Dog, and it's a memoir by the founder of Nike, Phil Knight. And um, it's a very humbling uh, first-person experience of a leader who obviously became Wildly successful, but it's personal trials and tribulations—it really humanizes the C-suite, I think—and gives you a good insight. Kind of like how I mentioned before that even though on the outside you're always 100% confident, uh, you know, maybe that's what your team sees and that's what externally people sees. Inside, you're struggling with a thousand different decisions before the one that you came to is the right one, and and they're not always the right one. Sometimes you. One step forward, two steps back, and, and it kind of gives you an out. And, it, and it's uh, okay to not be 100% right all the time.
0: Great, great, great selection for us. Thank you. And we are up to our final question where we ask you to look forward finally and share with us your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months.
1: Over the next 12 months, um, I think for me, the, the most important component is going to be timing the recovery correctly. You don't want to open up the purse strings too quickly and find yourself in a in a you know net cash usage situation, but you also don't want to be behind the curve. There's a lot of builders out there that are gonna time it maybe even tighter, and you don't want them to come in and swoop all that hard work that, that you've done, either gaining customers or or buying that you know critical piece of land. So I think just staying on top of the market and knowing when to when to pull back and when to, to press forward is going to be the most critical component.
0: Hila Seferuza, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks Jack. Hello listeners, do us a favor be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.